Welcome to the South Fellowship Church podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Uh, my name is Alex, and I am a Detroit Lions fan. Uh, still, still holding on. Um, still wearing the blue, as it happens. Uh, in a moment, we're going to get into a text. If you're visiting, I'm going to bring up certain texts from Scripture. I'm just going to walk you through them. And if you're new to that, then that's absolutely fine. It's a good place to be. If you know me, you know that I am passionate about footwear, especially footwear that you get for cheap from thrift stores. And so this morning, I wanted to make sure that I protected my feet. So I grabbed my big snow boots uh, and put them on and then walked out of the door, leaving my shoes behind. So I, I had only this big, big snow boots to wear. I thought for a moment about preaching barefoot, you know, and, and, and calling it a holiness thing uh, and trying to, trying to pitch that, but, but decided that would be off-putting for many. Uh, how do you know you're a European male when you have a spare pair of shoes just sitting around in your office that uh, seem to so far work with your outfit? So that was, that was my morning on this beautiful Colorado snowy morning. I am here properly shod and ready to preach. Uh, <laughs> we are in a section uh, of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to pick up a Bible, pick up scriptures, pick up the New Testament and just begin reading, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the first piece of bulk teaching that you would come to. There's been mostly narrative and then there's this moment where Jesus begins to teach. He'll teach for three chapters for 12 minutes and he'll move across all sorts of areas. He'll begin simply with this idea of who is blessed? Whose side almost is God on? And he'll create this unusual list and call blessed all sorts of people that society doesn't call blessed, the downs and outs, the, the margin folk. He says, these people in my new kingdom are blessed. And then, he, and then he starts to go back through the Old Testament, the Torah, and he begins to take these different laws that have, have kind of been reduced down to just almost like just the bare bones. Don't kill people. When, when you leave them, make sure they're still alive. Uh, and like just that, that's it. If you can do that, great. Uh, and, and then he starts to say, well, what was the heartbeat behind that? It was actually something more than that actually don't even hate people. He starts to restore a, a, a right way of living before God. And, and now we're in a section called the intentions where he'll pick some spiritual disciplines uh, and he'll say, this is the way to do them. Not just what should you do. It's not just give. It's not just pray. It's not just fast. It's how. How do you do those things? What's the spirit behind them? You might call this, well, I have called uh, this section of scripture, the kingdom manifesto outlining his, Jesus, new way to be human. It's a different way of living, a different, different, different style of life. And so last week we were in this section, in chapter six. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. All these three snippets that we'll land in, they're all centered around this idea. When you do spirituality, be very careful not to live it out just to impress those around you. This is a heart thing, it seems. It's not a performance thing. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus' overall message seems to be, if you think that there's something to get out of that, 
Well, actually, you're going to find it empty. The, the reward you'll get is the one you already had that people might think you a spiritual person. But in the end, is, is that really what you want? And, and the first one that we looked at was this practice of giving to the needy. When you give to the needy, a very important concept in first century Judaism. When you see people that are a part of the, maybe the down and outs, people who are going without, make sure you share what you have with them. When you are resource rich, make sure you look out for those that are resource poor. This isn't government language. You can decide whatever you like about the politics of that. This is you language. Jesus actually really provocatively and intentionally for this uses first person singular. First person singular. You're not allowed to get away with the church, does it? I'm not allowed to get away with the church, does it? It's you. It comes after you. And so this was the phrase I kind of ended with for you. Generosity begins with a why. A why in terms of the reason. But it requires a plan. Generosity doesn't tend to happen when you've not thought it through when you don't have resources set aside for it. When you don't do that, you'll live paycheck to paycheck. It requires that kind of plan, and it ends with an action, and that's maybe the moment that gets some of us. We've got all of these ideas about doing this, and then we're like, oh, I just, just didn't get round to it, if, you're, if I'm honest. After the service, I was chatting to some of our community, and, and they shared this quote with me that I loved. Generosity leads to contentment. Contentment very rarely leads to generosity. If you're waiting around for the moment when you say, I have enough, and in that moment, I'm like, then that will be my time. I'm going to share my resources. I'm going to make it happen. It will never come. It will never come. But if you choose generosity as a pathway, as an intention, you might be surprised how quickly contentment arrives, might be surprised. And now we turn the corner. Jesus has talked generosity. He's talked giving to the needy. And now he moves into this section where he'll talk about prayer, a thing that some of you in the room would say, I'm, I'm, I'm just deeply passionate about prayer. We have a group that prays. Their, their dream for South is, is that we become a house of prayer. And then we've probably got people in the room that would say, if I'm honest, I just don't do it. It, it, it just, I don't get it. It's not working for me. I've tried. I've given it my attention as much as I thought I could, and, and it just doesn't seem to get me over the hill. And yet, something happens when we pray. There's an evangelist back in England, and, and he has this beautiful phrase that he shares often. He says this, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Uh, our food bank community has regularly over the last season prayed for more meat. It's stuck up all over the place. There's little signs that say, pray for meat, pray for meat, because we were running short of meat. And so this weekend, we had 66 different items of meat to give out and around 66 shoppers. And so the food bank team on Saturday gave away every single one of those pieces of meat or those joints of meat. And then that afternoon, in the midst of all of that praying, Trader Joe's called and said, hey, you might want another vehicle for pickup this weekend. There's a lot of meat. There's a lot of meat. When I pray, coincidences 
happen and when I don't, they don't. My first overseas adventure was in the Philippines. We got up at four o'clock in the morning to do a big group prayer meeting. There's maybe 600 of us. And in the midst of that at four o'clock in the morning in this new, or new to me country, the light, the big floodlight over the courtyard goes out. As a good Westerner, I said, this is a great reason to go back to sleep. Let's just call <laughs> the thing off right now. We'll get a couple more hours in the sack. That will, that will be great. And yet, 550 Filipinos reached out their hand towards the light and prayed for it, and it came back on. When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. In 2012, my dad simply turned yellow. His liver just shut down. There was no explanation for it couldn't eat anything, lost a lot of weight, just looked like a shell of himself. We, of course, prayed for him. And after a couple of weeks, he went to the doctor, and the doctor said to him this, your liver wasn't working. It's working now. I don't know why. You should just go home. <laughs> now, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. And yet, in, in the midst of that, prayer is a mystery. I have no idea why some people are prayed for and a healing happens and some people are prayed for and it doesn't happen. I have no idea why sometimes we pray for meat and the cupboard stays empty and sometimes it doesn't. I don't have an explanation for that. And yet what I experience from talking to most followers of Jesus is, is that somewhere there's a tension here. Somewhere... We long to be good at prayer. It's not that we don't believe it works. We long for this interaction with our Father, like the one we sang about, and yet we rarely feel good at prayer. There's a tension there. And we'll unpack some of that in just a moment, because, because perhaps our feelings aren't the most important thing in the matter, but if I were to ask you across the room to, to say, if I were to say, raise your hand if you believe yourself to be a great prayer, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> but my guess is very few people would raise their hands to that. 80% of Americans say they believe in a God. Only 55% would say they pray daily. Catch the tension of that. 80% of Americans say, I believe there's a divine being that could theoretically be talked to, that there could be a conversation with, and only 55% say, I actually do that on a daily basis. You'd expect those numbers to be closer together, and it just shows some of the tension that we experience here. Maybe some of the frustration, some of the angst. Perhaps you've tried and it just didn't work. I get to share this today as a person that found for years prayer to be a struggle. I'm just not wired to sit quietly in a place. And that's how I was told that prayer happened. You sat, you closed your eyes, and you put your hands together. You bowed your head. And I would very quickly find that my fingers would start just to go. Find my foot would start to tap. I'd find that every part of me would suddenly seem to kind of like have a nervous energy to it. I just desired to get up and do something. Just stopping for that long was to me a hard thing. It was only later when people let me know that, you know, you can take a walk with God and talk to him, that some of those keys started to, or some of those locks started to be opened. 
Perhaps you've just been misinformed about prayer. Perhaps there's ways that you've not been given opportunity to pray and that you've been given this kind of childlike redundancy that hasn't been helpful. And yet with all our struggles, these are some things that people have said about prayer. It's a Christian's vital breath. It's a transforming friendship. It's the lifeblood of faith. So if you've chosen to follow Jesus, here's the challenge. The absence of prayer may not kill you, but you'll live on life support. You'll live on life support. This is a discipline. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. It can be hard. It's a learned behavior. We'll unpack some of that in a few weeks when we talk about fasting. We'll unpack some of the how you move from new to normal to natural. But it's something that we need to learn to do because it's life-changing. It's those things. And so we move to this passage where Jesus will teach his disciples to pray. In Luke's version of this story, it's actually a request. They come to him and say, Jesus, or Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. If you were to say, you know what, prayer would probably become easy if I could just have Jesus teach me how to pray, this is what he told them. Like, this, you're getting those words. This is the thing. His disciples came and said, teach us how to pray, said, say this stuff. Uh, and it's probably more an outline of the sorts of things that we might talk to God about as much as it is just say these words and these words only. But this is his guide to prayer. But he actually begins, before he gives any words, with some kind of culture of prayer, some kind of way that you do prayer. He begins with these words, and when you pray. Fascinatingly, the singular that we talked about in needy, the when you give to the needy, is now plural. It's when y'all pray in my British accent, my, my <laughs> southern British that you all love so much. Y'all, when y'all pray. <laughs> Doesn't sound right. The first piece of information we get is this, is, is that prayer is corporate. It's something that we do together. Brain science has started to unlock, uh, unlock the idea that you can actually do really hard things for a long period of time when you do them in a community. To just write everything off as just do it by yourself actually isn't, isn't brain science and it also isn't the heartbeat of scripture. So much of what we read is this corporate faith, this do this kind of thing together as challenging as that might be. So before we move to the more personal aspects, I want to talk about a way that we're going to do this through this time of Lent that's approaching, starting on February 14th. Uh, for the six weeks of Lent, we're going to walk through this thing called 24-7 prayer. That means that this community, together and individually, will pray for around a thousand hours. Not because more is just better, but because we get to all participate in it. Now, you can actually do 24-7 prayer as a community with just 24 people that want to pray for an hour every single day. But it might be that you say, that doesn't fit for me. That, that's going to be hard. And so what we're going to do is we're going to invite the whole community to participate in this. In this year where we see a whole bunch of stuff happening that, that maybe is scary. There's a whole bunch of thing going on in the Middle East uh, that might suggest to us what's happening to this world. 
in a year where we're about to have an election and, and some of you are saying, man, if, if Trump doesn't get in, I'm, I'm done, I'm gone. And some of you are saying, if Trump gets in, I'm done, I'm gone. Like there's a, there's a whole bunch of spectrum here. In a year where we're having conversations as a church about whether men and women are elders or just men are elders, this is a way that we get to come together and pray and we get to pray not my will be done, but God, your, your will be done in this. And recognize that you may not have the ability to tell always what God's will is or what he wants for a community, and I may not either. So we're gonna start signing up for this. I've already signed up some spots because I got to sign up first. So I took some spots, you might want. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I got Sunday morning. But if you have a phone and you want to grab that QR code, there's also a table out the back. But this will lead you to a digital prayer sign up and you'll be able to just start signing up for different spots and say, I want to pray for this community for all those sorts of things. Then, So if you have a phone right now, you can grab it right now. Your phone is so great these days, it will just grab it straight off the screen and you'll be halfway there. Prayer is corporate. And, and yet prayer is also personal. And here's the challenge, the tension that I think you'll see in Jesus' teaching between this idea that we pray corporately and the idea that we pray personally. Generally, this is what I found. A lack of personal prayer can lead to performance in your corporate prayer. And I use performance in this negative sense, this idea that Jesus will unpack of praying for show. When the only time you pray is in front of other people, generally, your attitude will be, this is a performance. This is some, something I'm doing for other people to see. You need and I need both of these. And this performance thing is the first place Jesus goes in his how not to pray, which is Jesus' MO here. He, he tells you how not to do it, and then he tells you how to do it. He tells me how not to do it, then he tells me how to do it. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. It seems that in Jesus' time, there were a whole bunch of people that on the surface seemed very religious. They loved to find prominent places on the streets or in the temple, and they would vocalize long prayers. The culture of the day was that you would take boxes and you'd place them on your forehead or perhaps on your arm and those would include written prayers in them and it seems that this crowd of people he's talking about had created bigger and bigger boxes to put these prayers in so you've literally at this point got guys with huge boxes just attached to the head just wandering around in society and people think that's fine and Jesus is like it's it's a fashion disaster to begin with but <laughs> there's good reasons not to pray like that don't pray like you're an actor in a role. Don't pray like you're an actor in a role. This is a still from the movie Marathon Man. It features two incredible actors of their day. On the left is Laurence Olivier, one of the great classical actors. On the right is Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was one of the early method actors. He tried deeply to get himself into character, to feel everything his character might feel, to immerse himself so deeply in the role. If he had an accent, he would use it when he was off the stage or when he was off film. He would dress like the person constantly. And there's been multiple guys that have done this, but, but the, beauty, the beautiful thing we get to observe here is, is the interaction between the two. 
There's this moment where Dustin Hoffman unpacks to Laurence Olivier why he needs to deeply immerse himself in this role because it has to be believable. And Laurence Olivier, this great classical actor, just turns around to him and says, my dear boy, you could try acting. You could, you, you could try actually acting. Just pretend to be the person that you're trying to be. And Jesus is like, no, don't pretend to be the person you're trying to be. It's got to be real. It's got to be from the heart. There's a whole bunch of people in Jesus' day that are playing this part. We get to see a little clip of it in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, you could point out multiple flaws in this guy's prayer strategy, but the, 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 the one that connects with what we're talking about is this idea that everything is about how he gets attention and who he is. He is the focus of his own prayer. Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't be like the hypocrites, the actors. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. There is a temptation that all of us will face when we live in a corporate community to make prayer a show to pray with others and to be thinking about how they will judge our prayer, how we might impress them with our prayer, to pray things that we would never perhaps pray for ourselves. The first century was no different. Prayer had become a ritual to be performed in front of others. The question that you might ask when you pray is this. When I pray, whose opinion am I interested in? Whose opinion? Am I interested in the people around me? The people who will hear me? Or is this a conversation between my father and I? Have you ever been in one of those human conversations where you realize that the conversation is, is really just between two people? I once met with a group of pastors regularly and there were, there were six of us and about five of us were similar ages. One of the younger guys about my age had a church that was growing dramatically. It was really successful. And then there was a, a guy about 65 who pastored for years a very successful church in the area. And I remember this one specific conversation where Roscoe, my friend, who was pastoring this new and upcoming church, he asked a question of the group. And I'm always ready to give an answer, it seems. So I just started giving my insights into this question. And I watched as Roscoe kind of just, just glazed over. And he was like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Peter, what do you think about this? <laughs> there was only one person in the room whose opinion he actually valued. It was a pastor who'd been doing this for years, who'd experienced lots of different things. He didn't want my opinion. He, he, he was clearly connecting to just one person. Corporate prayer seems to be designed like that. There may be other people in the room, but the conversation is supposed to be between you and your father. That's how it's designed. And Jesus says, when you pray like that, it's not that you're judged or that there's some kind of punishment for it. It's just the reward you get. You've already had it. The language for reward there is kind of connected to farming. You got what you grew. The thing that you planted, you got it. You got what you wanted, right? That was the thing. 
And Jesus says, don't pray like that. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus' culture of prayer is this, and if you remember nothing else, remember this. Prayer is not a ritual to perform, it's a relationship to pursue. It's a relationship to pursue. Means it doesn't matter how you do it. Means it doesn't matter what it looks like for you compared to someone else. It's, It's not about where you sit, it's not about a building, it's not about a group of people, it's simply about that relationship. It's about that relationship. We see that just a little bit in this Genesis text. Uh, we, we read this, and, and, and most people will read this and, and, and use it as proof that Adam and God walked together in the garden, and it seems like that could be the implication. Never actually says it, but when there's this moment of the fall, there's this moment where that relationship is broken. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Jesus is the one who restores this relationship. And the Chinese symbol, Fu, is simply this. Happiness equals God and one man in a garden. Happiness is God and one man in a garden. That's what prayer is, just simply you and God together in communion with each other. It's not a ritual. It's a relationship. You don't have to perform it. You have to pursue it. So most of us, I think, would probably say, I believe that. I'm on board with that. It might be hard, might be challenging, but I'm I'm on board. So the question is, if you've been following Jesus and prayer is still a struggle, the question I might ask is, what still gets in the way? And so while there may be some people here would say, I struggle with making prayer a show, I think there's far more of us that might say this. I think the thing that gets in the way of me praying is shame, is shame. It's the sense that I'm not all I should be and that even though I believe the Jesus story, I don't get the sense that he's very impressed with me. I actually feel like I'm not particularly valuable. I don't have it all together. And that actually he's not that interested in talking to me. Shame is a thing that breaks relationships. The writer Kurt Thompson says this, shame brings its dissonance to bear on all relationships. I love that word dissonance because it describes exactly what I feel in those moments about my relationship with God. Dissonance is this idea that it's like this tension between two things, two things that don't fit together. The best way I can get you to understand dissonance is for you to be able to hear it for just a moment. And I've played this clip for some of you before, but it's just such a great example of dissonance. I, I want you to hear it for a second. Do you hear that sound? How many of you think that's the right note to play? How many of you think that like sounds good? I mean, this is the Beatles. They know what they're talking about. It's like the best band ever to walk the surface uh, of the earth with no bias in my opinion whatsoever. But, but you hear that sound, that, dun, 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 dun. that that's dissonance. That's musical dissonance. You get dissonance in poetry. It's when, it's, it's when the couplets don't sound quite right. The rhyme is slightly off. The harsh, brief sob of broken horns, the sound of hammers on 
on some clanging sepulchre, lutes in a thunderstorm, a dulcimer by sudden drums and clamoring bugles drowned. There's rhymes that seem like they fit, but the, the vowels are the other way around, and it just throws us off a little bit. Music, uh, poetry have dissonance, but then, then there's cognitive dissonance. It's two ideas that just don't fit together. And th that's what we struggle with with shame. That's why shame is dissonant. It's this idea that God loves us, that we know cognitively. And then there's the feeling that we have when we pray that says, for whatever reason, I don't feel welcome here. Shame hampers the pursuit of relationship. Prayer can never be a relationship to pursue when shame is the center of it. Carl Jung said this, shame is a soul-eating emotion. It's a soul-eating emotion. It cuts to the heart of who we are. Brené Brown said, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. When you come to your father and the feeling is this glob of unworthiness, this sense of this just, I just, I'm not connected here. I feel like I'm at some point going to be sent away, that there's, there's no real relationship. That's shame at its core. Shame hampers the pursuit of relationship and moves prayer towards it, just a ritual, just something that we have to do. Here's what I think happens in shame. When you have those moments where you feel like I am disconnected from my father, when you try to pray, you become the audience of your own prayers. Everything is centered around, how am I feeling? How does God feel about what I'm saying? Do I feel loved? Do I feel valuable? That's why I began with this idea that perhaps feelings aren't the most important thing in prayer. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant screw tape letters, articulates this idea. Whenever they are attending to the enemy, and remember in the screw tape letters, enemy always refers to Jesus. It's very confusing, very backwards. We are defeated, but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him towards themselves. Keep them, from, keep them watching their own minds, trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. When they mean, meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, teach them to be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feelings and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at that moment. If you find that your moments of prayer become centered on how do I feel here, you may be missing out because the central aspect of prayer is not how you feel about what you've said. It's about what God says about you. It's what God says about you. Catch hold of this idea that Paul shares with this early church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that for you again for a second. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us, this is the message version now, uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How you ask? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with Christ. When you have moments where there seems there's this enormous divide between you and your father, when you have moments where it seems like the doors of heaven are shut, when you have moments when you pray and feel that sense of unworthiness, when you have moments when you pray and say, I don't really feel like God likes me or wants me here or he's excited by my presence, know that all of those are just feelings. All of those are just feelings And what matters is what God says about you. Become friends with God. He is already a friend with you. Shame leaves us with a relationship that's restored, a relationship that's joyful, and it it becomes stagnant, empty, and broken. In 1 John, John writes a letter to some early believers and says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. It seems that lots of pastors of the early church had to do this work with the first believers, reminding them that it didn't matter how they felt internally, it was simply what God says about them that mattered. Henry Nouwen said, the real work of prayer is to become silent, to listen to the voice that says good things about me, to gently push aside and silence the many voices that question my goodness and to trust that I will hear the voice of blessing that demands real effort. In those moments of prayer where all you can focus on is all of the many things about you that at times feel true, but are not God's truth. Ask yourself this question. Who told me that? Who told me that? Because one of the things I would say is that that voice is not the voice of God. It's not the voice of God. It's the voice of the enemy. When you pray, do not keep on babbling, Jesus goes on like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You are not called to a ritual, I am not called to a ritual, but to a relationship with a Father who knows us, who loves us intimately, who longs for us, who sees our needs before we even ask, who says, I am with you, I am for you, says that you are loved and not despised, that there is a hope and a future, not a sad ending. This is the relationship that you are invited to. You're invited to relationship with a Jesus who, as we will do today, gathered around a table and sat with Judas the betrayer and Peter the betrayer and the rest of the disciples who would run. 
in their worst and most broken moments with all of their failures hanging out to be seen by everybody and said to each of them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. In the moments where you feel at your worst and the moments where it feels like there is no relationship, this God says, become friends with Christ. He's already a friend of yours. That's what you're invited to, not a ritual. It's a relationship to pursue, a relationship made possible by the Jesus who did this for us, who gave his life. During the meal, Jesus took and blessed the bread, broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. Taking the cup and thanking God, he gave it to them. Drink this, all of you, this is my blood. God's new covenant poured out for many people for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to come to this table where Jesus waits for you. Waits with bated breath, waits with the love of a father who says that you are mine and you are loved. If shame stands in the way, shame can die here. If shame stands in the way, there are people at the back in our prayer corner that would love to pray for you. There'll be people dotted around here. But you're not called to a ritual. Don't land a ritual. Pursue a relationship with a God who did this. Let's stand together. If prayer has stopped for you, if you would say, I, if I'm honest, Alex, I can't remember the last time I spoke to my father. I encourage you to have someone pray with you. But most of all, I encourage you, just start talking with him. Start talking with the one who is no further away than the chair next to you. You're not talking to someone who is distant up in space. You're not talking to someone who is just sat somewhere inside you like a very small person. You're talking to your father who is with you, who is for you. Jesus, as we contemplate before we come to this table, would you speak to us? I just know in this room that there are people that said, shame is me. That is, that is my thing. That is just the thing I'm carrying. I try to pray and I just feel so disconnected and so unworthy. God, would you lead us out of that? Lead us into your truth. Lead us into what you say about us. Amen. If you've been touched by this ministry and you want that to spread to others, you might consider partnering with us financially. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.